Good morning and thank you all for joining us for the WAM Global 2023 results webinar. My name's Katrina Burns and I'm the lead portfolio manager for WAM Global. I want to start by thanking all of our shareholders for your ongoing support. This is your company and we're pleased to provide you with an update and the opportunity to ask us questions. I'm currently in New York and in Sydney we have portfolio manager Nick Healy, senior investment analyst William Liu and corporate affairs associate Emiko Reid to moderate your questions. Before we begin, a disclaimer is displayed for you on the screen to read. What we will discuss today is general in nature and is not financial advice. In terms of the agenda for the call, I'll begin by providing an update on the recent results we've just announced and then discuss our view on the macroeconomic backdrop, uh, markets more generally and the outlook ahead before providing an update on portfolio positioning. Nick will then provide an overview of the global reporting season, which is just concluding, and then he and Will will discuss some of the thematics that the portfolio is exposed to and some specifics around stocks in the portfolio before we turn to Emiko to moderate the Q&A. Now, before I go into the detail around the full year results, I wanted to briefly recap on what, what we are aiming to provide for shareholders with the WAM Global Fund. Now, firstly, it's access to a portfolio of undervalued growth companies from around the world, with the background being that before we launched the fund, we had shareholders saying they didn't have access to international stocks and they did want that diversification in their portfolios. Secondly, it's capital growth over the medium to long term using the proven Wilson Asset Management investment process. Thirdly, preservation of capital. And fourthly, a steady stream of dividends. We own a portfolio of what we judge as outstanding companies which have strong industry positions, capable management teams, and that have demonstrated earnings resilience in what is right now a very dynamic operating environment. So let's now turn to the recent results, which we announced yesterday. It, the results uh, reported uh, for the period ending 30 June 2023. Now, the WAM Global Board of Directors has declared a final fully, fully frank dividend of 5.75 cents a share, bringing the full year fully frank dividend to 11.5 cents a share, which is an increase of 4.5%. The increased dividend represents a fully frank dividend yield of 6.2% and a grossed up yield of 8.9% on the 30 June 2023 share price. Now, this yield is significantly greater than the yield you would earn, that you earn on an average um, for the global equity market overall, which is 2.1%, and the average US equity market dividend yield, which is 1.6%. Since the beginning of the fund, we've paid out 35.75 cents a share in fully frank dividends, and that's before this final dividend is paid. The WAM Global investment portfolio increased 19.3% during the year with an average cash holding of 6.5%. The, the Miski World Small Mid Index over this period increased 16.5%, and the Miski World Index increased 22.4%. Total shareholder return for WAM Global for the year to 30 June was 16.7%. As at 31 July 2023, the company's 
Profits Reserve was 49.4 cents a share, which forms part of the NTA. Now, this represents 4.3 years of dividend coverage for shareholders before the payment of the final fully frank dividend and 3.8 years after we pay that. With that, let's turn to the macroeconomic backdrop before discussing, before I'll discuss portfolio positioning. If we reflect on the past year and what's happened, we saw inflation surge around the world as we reopened post-pandemic and as supply chains struggled to keep up with resurgent demand. In reaction, we've seen, we saw central banks around the world globally raising rates to try and curb inflation. As you can see from the chart, the US Federal Reserve benchmark rate, for example, has gone up 5.25% from zero over a 17-month period. This is the fastest rise in rates we've seen in over 40 years and the highest rate we've seen at an uh, individual level um, since um, 2001. Now, in, if we look at about the fear and why people fear interest rates going up, it's that if you look at history, central banks and monetary policy has what has led economies into recession. So it isn't an unreasonable fear that everyone is concerned that the rise, the very quick rise in interest rates will lead us to a recession. But the reality right now is that in the main, the global economy has proven itself relatively resilient up until now, and inflation is now trending in the right direction. As you can see from the chart, this is US inflation and the rising interest rates have had that desired effect of reducing inflation. But as you can see, the level is still sitting above the Fed's targeted 2% level. Now, the next chart we've put in the pack is the Citigroup Economic Surprise Index. Uh, and Citigroup produces this index um, and it's representing basically the sum of the difference between official economic results and forecasts. And a sum over zero means that the economic performance has generally beat market expectations and a number below zero indicates that economic conditions have been generally worse than expected. And as you can see, the US has consistently been delivering economic results that have actually been better than expectations. Whereas if you look at the more recent numbers for Europe and China, we do see that most recently they have been missing expectations. So we are seeing a bit of divergence. So why has there been resilience in particular in that US economy in the face of rising rates? The fact is that monetary policy does always work with a lag. So even with rates having gone up so much, it does take time for that to actually feed into the real economy. And that's particularly the case in the US where most interest um, mortgages are actually 30 year fixed. So that if you own a home, then your repayments don't actually change. It's only if you are trying to buy a property and need to get a new mortgage that you are forced to pay these higher rates. Whereas, you know, in, in economies like Australia, we are much more a variable rate market. Now, typically the lag for monetary policy can be anything from two to eight quarters or six to 24 months. So that lag isn't unusual. It's not unusual that post rates, we will see, it will take time to feed into the real economy. But what is different this time round compared to prior interest rate raising cycles is that we came into this cycle with significant pandemic savings 
stuck at home. The, we were unable to spend spend money and savings did build up both at the consumer level uh, and at many corporates. Uh, and so it has taken time to, to bring down those savings and it has created a bit of a buffer for the US economy in particular. Also this time around, as well as those pandemic savings, we have had incredibly supportive fiscal policy and, and there is more to come. We've had uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the IRA and, and the CHIPS Act in the US, which when you put it all together is about $2 trillion in investments that are, still, that are to come in the next 10 years. So that has also supported the economy. Let's now uh, talk about the outlook ahead. And right now, the global economy is running at different speeds. Um, depending on the country. So you've got the US continuing to hold up relatively well. You've got Europe, which is very mixed, and you've got China that's deteriorating. If we look at the final chart on the slide, it's showing the purchasing man uh, manager indices for various geographies around the world. Now, the PMI is, is seen as an important lead indicator for the state of an economy, with readings below 50 indicating contraction and numbers above um, uh, and numbers above 50 indicating expansion. Now, the chart shows that, and we've only put um, the, the change from July to August, so it is only a, a, a one-month period, but it does the, the trend is, is ongoing, um, and so we will be watching these, these numbers closely as each one comes out as a, as a bit of a lead. But the, as you can see on the chart, from July to August, for all geographies, uh, except China, where we've only been able to put in June, uh, June to July because we don't have the data yet, you are seeing um, a deterioration and you are seeing that the UK and Europe are now contracting um, and that all companies, uh, countries except Japan are now in contract, are all uh, declining. Um, and Japan is a bit of an outlier in that it has been incredibly slow to reopen properly post-COVID. So it is now benefiting from that reopening bump um, that other geographies got when they, when they reopened. As we look forward, we do expect that multiple jurisdictions continue to slow as those higher interest rates impact demand with that, with that lag that we do tend to see. So both consumers and corporates have had to, had to, like going forward, will have to pay higher interest rates to borrow. So we do think that that will mean that they take on less borrowings, which in, then has a multiplier effect on, on the economies around them. We also have banks that are going to be likely more cautious around who they lend to, given the issues of regional banks in the US or Credit Suisse's demise in Europe. And we expect that the companies that will struggle from here are those that have over-leveraged on that expectation that cheap rates would continue forever or that raised, rate, raised money and were able to get low-cost financing during a period of zero interest rates but actually have flawed business models or are in industries that have very low barriers to entry. Uh, and we think there will be a number of these businesses that don't, that don't exist when we look forward when we look actually further, when we look around the world, and if you look at certain geographies like Europe, for example, the manufacturing sector is under some pressure right now, which is typical in an economic slowdown. But there are green shoots, green spots in terms of energy transition areas exposed to energy transition investments. Um, so this does soften the blow for certain companies. 
Um, and even in the services areas, we can find a number of businesses that are actually continuing to, to perform very strongly. Inflation is coming down in Europe, although it has been very slow. Rates there did start rising uh, after the US. Um, and so we do expect that the inflation numbers will continue to tick down. Um, and even in, in Europe, like the US, we are getting close to the end of the interest rate hiking cycle and we think it is a market where if you pick your spots carefully, you can really, you still find new investment opportunities. And it ha is a market that has underperformed in terms of share price um, performance um, compared to other places like, like the US. Now, one area of recent disappointment is China, and it's getting a lot of media attention at the moment. Um, the Chinese economy is under pressure currently, and there's many um, various reasons for this. And and to list a few, you know, you've had the government in recent years crack down um, on various areas of the economy, including at over-leveraged parts of the real estate market. Um, you have had genuine bottlenecks with reopening and the inability to get things like passports, um, lack of flights to enable travel out of the country, etc. Um, and then there is this dynamic of deglobalization where Although it's not like companies can, you know, shut down what product manufacturing they have in China, there is a definite trend for companies to want to diversify their supply chains. And it has meant less capex in investment going into China. And then to compound this, you've got demographic headwinds with the birth rate continuing to come down uh, and high levels of youth unemployment on the, on the positive side, we do think the government has significant incentives, including prevention of social unrest, to uh, increase stimulus um, and try to drive the growth rates higher. But we do think growth rates of the past, last few decades are a thing of the past. Um, and so, yeah, there's going to be certain pockets that do better. You do have to have that economy change from having been more an infrastructure investment-led economy to more a consumption-led um, growth going forward. So to conclude on the macro, uh, we do we are expecting an ongoing going slowdown in global growth as those interest rates affect the underlying economies. Uh, we do think this will affect earnings growth of many companies, particularly cyclical businesses. Um, but the positive is that central banks um, around the world are likely near the end of interest rate rises. Um, and, and, what we've, and one thing we do very much want to highlight and which the next chart shows is that it's always important to remember that investing in stock markets, uh, when investing in stock markets, is that the stock market isn't the economy. Um, and so whilst we do think about macroeconomic in the macroeconomic backdrop, the reality is that equity markets themselves are forward-looking. So when we look at the portfolio and the outlook for the companies we own, we are really optimistic. We own a portfolio uh, of really high-quality, undervalued businesses that we think will prove resilient under a range of economic outcomes. And the market always bottoms before, um, before the underlying real economy does. Um, so with that, let me turn now to um, the portfolio and, and some information uh, around the positioning of the portfolio. Firstly, from a geographic perspective, we continue to have a significant percentage of the portfolio in the US. Uh, as at the end of July, that percentage was 68%. 
To be clear, though, and as we've discussed many times on, on webinars um, before, the companies that we own in the US, many of them are very multinational in nature and they source their revenue and earnings from all around the world. But the benefit of having them uh, US listed is that we get the governance requirements placed on these companies of being domiciled in the US or listed on US exchanges. The next biggest exposure is the UK and Europe with about 20% of the portfolio there. Then the remaining 6% is in Japan, Hong Kong and Australia. And as at the end of July, we had 5.6% of the portfolio in cash. Now, the geographic, geographic exposure is an output of the, of the businesses we choose to invest in, not a specific goal that we target. Um, and so what we are focused on isn't any particular geographies per se, it's about using our investment process to identify those great businesses uh, around the world that we think have tailwinds to drive their earnings higher in the coming years, then overlaying this with identifying catalysts that we think will drive the share price higher. Now, secondly, in terms of portfolio exposure, we remain overweight small and mid-cap companies. And we've put a chart in here just referencing the performance of small and large cap um, performance um, com uh, indexes, um, with the first um, being the chart of um, the longer-term um, performance uh, of uh, small, small caps versus um, large. And then the, uh, then the uh, chart on the right being the more recent um, put, um, performance of the small mid index relative to the large cap index. Now, one of the headwinds, as you can see from the chart, has been that the portfolio has faced, and but what makes us really excited about the future is that enormous disconnect um, between small and large companies in terms of, um, of that performance in the last year and also since the start of the fund. So small and mid cap companies have always been a really happy hunting ground of Wilson Asset Management. Um, with WAM Capital having focused there since its inception 24 years ago. And at, whilst at WAM Global, we do own companies of all sizes um, applying our investment process, we, that often does take us down this smaller end of the market. And that's because these companies do tend at the smaller end, often grow faster and tend to be more undiscovered with less broker coverage. And so over the life of the WAM Global Fund, We've consistently had a, more than half of the fund invested in small, mid-sized companies, uh, and that percentage is currently 55% of the fund. So over the long term, as you can see from the chart on the left, this smaller end of the market has outperformed larger companies globally. But over the past five years, the, the MISCI small, um, small mid uh, companies are trailing 37% behind their large cap peers, and in the US, it's even more dramatic at 65%. So the point being that we remain overweight, small and mid-sized companies, and whilst in many cases the share prices may have kind of come under pressure uh, with concern around macroeconomic backdrop, the thing is the earnings continue to hold up really well and the valuations we see is even more compelling, which sets up for strong returns going forward. In terms of, um, there's a chart uh, now on just in terms of more small versus uh, small and mid valuations um, versus large. And when you look at small and mid versus large, they're at levels globally right now not seen 
since the global financial crisis and in the US at levels not seen since the dot-com crash in 2001. And interestingly, if you look at what happened to small and mid-cap companies from that dot-com period up to the GFC, they significantly outperformed their larger cap peers. In terms of valuations, on a forward price-to-earnings basis, global small and mid-caps have traded at an average 15% premium to large caps, as the, as the chart shows, over the last 20 years. But as of 30, at the end of June, they were trading at a 10% discount. And during similar periods in the last 20 years, small caps have gone on to outperform over the following uh, 12 months. So with that, for some context uh, around our geographic and size of company exposure, let me hand over to Nick, who will run through uh, what we saw at the global, um, the last uh, earnings season and some context for how we use the earnings season in our investment process. Then Nick and Will will discuss thematics and, de and do some more um, detailed um, introductions on some of the stocks that are in the portfolio. Absolutely. Thank you, Katrina. So we are just approaching the conclusion of the second quarter earnings season at the moment, with most companies around the world having reported. So we thought it was a good time to take you through some of the things we're seeing, as well as how we use the earnings season as part of our process. So at the high level, uh, this was a relatively resilient earnings season with two thirds of companies beating expectations, with clear pockets of strength in areas like consumer services, uh, travel, and with um, AI hardware beneficiaries, namely NVIDIA, having very strong results. There were also pockets of weakness. Uh, the Katrina touched on the weakness that's coming out of China and Europe. Uh, there was also weakness in consumer discretionary areas and delinquencies, as highlighted by the results from Target and Macy's. So if we think through what these results mean for how we're updating our view of the world, we do think there's increasing evidence that higher interest rates, although it has taken a long time, are starting to impact the consumer. We expect excess savings built up during the pandemic to be exhausted this quarter, so we would expect headwinds to the consumer over the coming period. But that highlights the benefit of our investment process. So because we're able to be active bottom-up stock pickers, we're able to position the fund to be exposed to more of the pockets of strength that we're seeing in the world and to avoid the weaknesses. Will and I will go into more depth in the thematics, but some of the areas that we're exposed to that are performing well include infrastructure, insurance, financial exchanges, healthcare, and AI beneficiaries. Earnings season is also great because after companies report, they exit blackout and are available for meetings. We talk to hundreds of companies around the world every year and find that talking to management teams is invaluable as part of our process. We're currently talking to our existing holdings and potential new investments, and the team is traveling in September to the US and Europe, where we're talking to a company, companies from a range of industries, and we look forward to updating you on our learnings from that trip afterwards. Now, turning to thematics, uh, so although we are bottoms up stock pickers and we are always looking for undervalued growth companies with a catalyst, when we look at the portfolio as a whole, there are a number of thematics that will drive it, uh, for, structurally drive it for years to come. 
Just mentioning three of those today, we're going to cover health and wellness, data and analytics, and infrastructure underbuild. Will and I will each give you two stocks from each of the thematics just to illustrate how we're thinking about things. So in health and wellness, we do strongly believe that demographics are destiny, and we think there's two data points that drive the strength in health and wellness over the years to come. The first is we know that populations are clearly aging. In fact, by 2050, the cohort of over 60-year-olds is set to double to more than 2 billion. We also know that as people age, they do tend to spend a lot more on healthcare with the NHS in the NIH in the US uh, estimating that the over 65 cohort spends on average four times more per year than a 40-year-old. So we think these two facts are reasons to believe that healthcare will have a very strong tailwind behind it in coming years. Two companies that we hold in the fund amongst others that are exposed to healthcare include Icon and Edwards. ICON is the leading clinical research organization in the world. They conduct trials and undertake drug discovery on behalf of pharmaceutical firms. This ranges from small biotechs all the way up to the very large global pharmaceutical companies. And trials are increasingly complex and global today. What this means is pharmaceutical firms are looking for partners with global scale and with the capability to do any drug discovery vertical. Icon are certainly benefiting from this given their, their leading global scale and they are taking share off smaller rivals. At the same time, the biotech market has been facing headwinds over the past year as it digests higher rates. But Icon have performed really well through this environment as evidenced by their most recent result where they grew earnings 9% and potentially more importantly, increase their backlog by 9%. Management were upbeat about both how the business is being operated and the trends they see that will drive the business in the future. Really importantly for Icon, they enjoy a $22 billion backlog that will drive the company, that provides visibility to drive the company's growth for years to come. Now, Icon trades at under a 20 times forward price to earnings multiple, which we think does not reflect the high quality management, that very strong backlog, and just the strong results that they're putting out. Our expectation is continued strong results will drive an appreciation in the market for the quality of this company. The second company I'd like to talk about today is Edwards. They're the leading player in structural heart repair technologies, and they were founded in 1958 and actually co-developed the first successful heart valve replacement. More recently, they've been a pioneer in the minimally invasive aortic heart valve market, where today they hold 50 to 60% market share. This is a market that's set to double over the next five years to $10 billion, which we think provides Edwards with the opportunity to grow that core business at over 10% revenue rates. Additionally, Edwards have been investing in adjacent technologies, so tricuspid and mitral valve solutions. These parts of the business are really firing at the moment, and although small, grew over 60% in the most recent quarter, and we foresee growth for years to come. 
So we think that's quite additive to Edward's ability to grow, and we see a path to grow earnings strong double digits for multiple years. Edwards is also a fantastic chance to talk about how we think about the quality of a business. There are many ways to approach quality, but one of the things we like to see in a business is high cost of failure. Now, as you might understand, heart valves are an extremely high cost of failure space, with both the patient and the doctor having a huge drive to select the best and most trusted product on the market. This benefits Edwards. They have years of industry leading uh, they have years of leading the industry, which has built up a lot of trust with the surgeon community, and they're approaching a billion dollars in annual R&D spend, which they allocate to make sure that they maintain the best-in-class solutions on the market. This creates a lot of stickiness and switching costs, which is one of the primary reasons we see Edwards as a very high-quality company. We also see Edwards as very undervalued by the market today, that double-digit revenue growth for years to come is a very attractive quality, as well as how high quality the management are and how well run the business is. We think there's a clear catalyst to drive growth of the share price from here, with hospital staffing improving this year, um, unlocking the ability to grow at pre-COVID levels, which we think will drive the stock upwards. So that's just two companies, Icon and Edwards, amongst others that are exposed to health and wellness in the fund. I'll now pass over to Will to take us through another couple of themes. Thanks, Nick. The theme I want to touch on today is data and analytics. So we've had this long-held belief that the value of data and analytics are increasingly valuable assets. This has been validated with the recent surge in popularity for artificial intelligence, um, with high-quality data being a key input into generative large language models, matching the right data set with the right model is key for generative AI. As a result, we think there will be significant monetization opportunities from this structural opportunity, and I'll talk through two names which we think will be poised to benefit. The first name I want to talk about is Adobe. Adobe is a global diversified software company with leading market positions in digital media and digital experience. In fact, the company is mission critical for its customers and has become industry standard, which leads to network effects where professionals and consumers are proficient in its software. Its strong pricing power and its scale of distribution has meant that it's been very successful in capturing, capturing an increasing value of the um, increasing share of the value that they generate for its customers. We believe generative AI will be a significant monetization opportunity for Adobe. Adobe recently launched its Adobe Firefly product, which has been the most successful beta launch in the company's history. Adobe Firefly is a family of generative AI models initially focused on image and text creation. And we believe this will change creative workflows and communications and result in productivity and efficiency gains. The key differentiator for Adobe versus its competitors is that it has a unique data and content library that is built in a completely commercially safe way. We believe enterprises will tend towards this product as they do not want to infringe on copyright issues. We expect to see improved user conversion, um, increased new user acquisition, and opportunity to cross-sell its content and data packages, which will result in significant earnings potential in the coming quarters. Adobe has an incredibly attractive financial profile. It consistently delivers 90% gross profit margins and 45% operating margins, showcasing the inherent leverage, operating leverage within its business. 
the company is trading on 30 times price to earnings ratio for a long runway of double digit revenue and earnings growth. And we believe this is highly attractive. The catalyst here is that we expect the take up of Adobe Firefly to come in the upcoming quarterly results and we expect investors to understand um, the monetization opportunity as a result. The second company I want to talk about is SAP, and they are also exposed to this data and analytics thematic. SAP is a global leader in enterprise application software. The company is in the later stages of transitioning away from its traditional license-based revenues towards a recurring cloud-based revenues. And we believe this is underappreciated by the market, particularly the earnings potential that it unlocks. SAP is poised to become a leader in business AI. Imagine a trusted layer of data across the business, which AI can readily pull in a matter of seconds. SAP is in a unique position to capture this opportunity because of the unique business data they can access, the unique business context that they can access. So it's all about making sure they're pulling the right data and implementing it in the right large language model for generative AI. In fact, at its recent Investor Day, SAP mentioned the potential for business AI to double its total addressable market from roughly $500 billion in 2023 to over a trillion dollars in 2028. And this is highly attractive. Already you're seeing AI implemented in the capabilities, SAP cloud customers who use SAP S4HANA finance intelligent processing solutions. They've already seen the time between invoice and collection reduced by 10%, and that showcases the uh, efficiency and productivity gains that SAP could potentially unlock. So we believe, irrespective of generative AI, we believe SAP's core is performing extremely well. SAP is well on track to achieve its midterm guidance and deliver sustainable double-digit operating earnings growth. The company is trading on 21 times, and with the recent divestiture of its Qualtrics business, we expect share buybacks to underpin the share price and be a positive catalyst for the name. So that's another example of a company that is leveraged to the data and AI and analytics thematic, and we're constructive on. The second thematic I want to touch on today is the global infrastructure underbuild. Um, we have seen the rise of electric vehicles, renewable energy, grid modernization, result in significant investments, as Trey mentioned earlier. And this will result in significant earnings potential for a number of our portfolio holdings including Qantas Services and Atlas. So Qantas Services is a leading North American infrastructure solutions provider with key um, businesses in energy transition, um, renewable energy, um, electric grid modernization, connectivity. So they have deep relationships with these customers and a lot of this spend is non-discretionary in nature, which gives you a great sense of the earnings resilience of the business. Importantly, Quanta is a key enabler of the North American energy transition. The Inflation Reduction Act signed by President Joe Biden um, last year will create tailwinds for their business considering the significant amount of investments going into energy security and renewable energy and clean, clean energy transition. Already, Quanta is seeing strong demand across its businesses in um, grid modernization, system hardening, in um, renewable energy integration and generation. And that is despite these tailwinds from the regulatory um, policies to come through. If we look at August, Quanta reported a record backlog of $27 billion, which is up 35% on the prior year. And again, this touches on the point where you have great earnings visibility for this business. 
Um, the company trades at 24 times price to earnings, and we believe there is a sustainable path for double-digit revenue growth and earnings per share growth. And we believe they're well on track to beat their midterm ambitions set out at their investor day targets. And this will act as a positive catalyst. The other name I want to touch upon today is Aplos. It's a testing, inspection, and certification business based in Spain. The company um, generally has quite resilient revenue earning streams as well. Um, generally, a lot of its revenues are tied to regulated um, services. So Aplos, we think the market is misunderstanding the portfolio transition that management has undertaken, particularly within its energy and industry segment. At its time of IPO in 2014, Oil and gas capital expenditure revenues represented 24% of their revenues and were facing some structural pressures at the time. We saw lower spending from their customers on oil and gas capex. We saw lower oil prices. And that segment of the business generally was, was underperforming in terms of revenue and margin expectations. And this has changed more with the new management team. Firstly, oil and gas capital expenditure markets have largely stabilised. But secondly, and more importantly, the management has transitioned the business away from oil and gas capital expenditure revenues towards long-term stable growth and markets, including in renewable energy, infrastructure solutions, and connectivity. And oil and gas capital expenditure revenues represent only 5% of their revenues today. We believe they're exposed to long-term thematic trends, including the digitization, renewable energy, and the clean energy transition. And this will create tailwinds for their business going forward. Aplus is trading at nine and a half times price-to-earnings ratio, which is meaningfully below its peers. For a company delivering mid-single-digit organic revenue growth and improving its operating margins. Further, the company has deleveraged its balance sheet and has been repurchasing shares on market, which is a positive sign for shareholders. More recently, there's been private equity interest with Apollo putting in an all-cash bid for the business. We would not be surprised to see other interested parties, and we would who will bid a premium for this asset. We think the market is clearly underappreciating free cash flow generation, the turnaround in asset quality, and the valuation of this business. And we expect positive catalysts yet to come. So I've touched on data analytics um, and the global infrastructure underbuilt and some examples of companies in both thematics. And I'll pass it back to Nick. Thanks, Will. While only six companies that we hold in the portfolio, we do think those are representative of the types of things we look to hold. Great industry structures, great management teams running companies well that are providing results that give us confidence. And if we zoom out more broadly, we are very confident in the holdings that we have in the WAM Global Fund. Uh, we continue to stick to our process, which is to talk to a lot of management teams turn over a lot of stones to make sure that we have the best possible undervalued growth companies with a catalyst in the fund for you, our investors. As always, we really appreciate the engagement and the time you've given us in turning in today. And I'll now pass the call over to Emiko, who will open it up for the question and answer portion of the call. Thanks, Nick, and the team for your insights. And thank you to everyone for joining the webinar today. We've received quite a few questions from the audience. Katrina, we'll start with you for the first question. This one's from Grace. Can you please clarify the current dividend yield and profits reserve? Why not increase the dividend more given the strong profits reserve? Thanks for the question, Grace. Uh, so in terms of the um, 
current dividend yield. Um, in the formal um, part of uh, my uh, presentation, I referred to the dividend yield as at 30 June share price. Um, on the share price um, closing share price yesterday, um, the equivalent dividend yield is that 11.5 cents on the 198.5 um, uh, cent share price, which is a 5.8% dividend yield, and grossed up, that's 8.3%. Um, in terms of the profit reserve, um, as at the end of July, we did have 49.4 cents in, in the profit reserve, and um, that's 4.3 years um, of dividend coverage um, before that payment of the final fully frank dividend, um, and 3.8 um year's coverage after payment of that final dividend. Uh, in terms of um, why not increase the dividend more given that strong profit reserve, um, firstly, I guess uh, dividends are a board decision. So, um, but, I, but in terms of, um, uh, I don't want to speak for the board, but I'll give my, my view. I think the, the, in terms of why not to increase, we do um, so far in terms of those 35.75 cents in dividends that we have paid, they have been fully franked. So one of the issues with not increasing the dividend more is that we have to accumulate franking um, over time um, if we want to keep fully frank, um, franking those dividends. Um, and, and so as at 30 June, we had 6.2 cents in the franking account balance. So um, we do need to accumulate, um, pay more tax um, as an Australian um, company taxpayer uh, to accumulate more cents in that franking account balance. Um, already the dividend is at that 5.8% yield, which we think is a, is a very, you know, solid return for, for shareholders. Um, and that's, you know, before the, the capital growth and, and increase in, in NTA. Um, so we think that is actually quite high. Um, and, and with that franking, you know, grossing that up at 8.3, even higher. Um, so, look, it's a board decision. Um, the policy has been, our theory has been that we wanted to increase dividends gradually over time. Um, but, yeah, with that restraint of the franking um, would, would limit the, the ability to fully frank if we went more aggressively. Thank you, Katrina. We'll stick with you. This question is from Lee. Can you please clarify the comments around franking credits and WAM Global's ability to pay fully frank dividends going forwards? Sure. Um, so thanks, Lee. In terms of the franking, um, as, as um, uh, Grace was just asking about, in terms of that franking account balance, as at 30 June, we had 6.2 cents uh, in the franking account balance. Um, our preference is to pay full, to fully frank dividends to the maximum extent we can. Um, in the interim and the final results media releases, we did highlight um, that the ability to continue to fully frank dividends will be dependent on generating additional franking credits, um, which is through that we do, which we generate through paying tax to the ATO, um, given we're an Australian listed company. Um, so right now, that six point two cents. Then we can add up. We, we in July the portfolio was up two point four cents, um, and we topped up the franking account by about another one point five five cents a share. Um, so we are adding to that franking account balance to enable us to hopefully fully frank the next dividend. But it will be subject. The franking will be subject to ability to keep generating um, and adding to that franking account balance. Great. Thank you, Katrina. Nick, we'll turn to you now. 
We've received a number of questions on AI from James, Susan and Peter. Combining them, what is the WAM Global's team view on the winners and losers from AI? How will this affect society more broadly? And finally, does the WAM Global team use AI in stock selection? Yes, um, thank you for the question, James, Susan and Peter. Um, we did expect questions on AI, so not, not surprised. It is certainly a very important part of the market today. I think uh, in the bigger picture societal sense, we do have the view that AI is a um, truly generational technological advancement and it will drive productivity gains um, over time. These things usually occur over years, not months, so we would expect that to occur over time, but we do think it's real. And I really like the framing of thinking of AI in terms of winners and losers. Uh, our view on the winners are that we are seeing clearly that um, AI hardware provider NVIDIA will be a significant winner of this shift. But we also think that what happens with prior technologies and what will happen with this technology is that will broaden out. Um, I think Will did a very good job of discussing the fact that we think data will become only more valuable and important. And we also think those technology platforms will have a big role to play. So Will mentioned um, SAP and Adobe. We, I mean, we also hold others. We hold Intuit, whose results last week. Uh, Intuit provide um, accounting, tax, finance, marketing for small businesses and consumers. Uh, their result last Friday was just really strong in terms of them making very clear they have the distribution, they have the data, and they have the technology to be clear winners in AI as they roll, roll out co-pilot products over the next few years. So I think the winners we see is initially hardware, but broadening into data and platforms. On the loser side, which we think is also very important from an investing perspective, we got the first um, clear loser coming out last quarter's earnings. Uh, education software company Chegg talked about the fact that students are already using ChatGPT to improve their homework and, and test taking. Um, so they're, they're a clear loser. We think more broadly it's any situation where a uh, low value add, quite manual, quite rote process is in place. That's where you should be alert to the potential for disruption. Um, some end markets we're thinking about as potentially being disrupted. So video game development, um, marketing, Potentially coding is going to get a lot easier. So those would be areas where you just have to be cautious about the, the disruptive approach. But we, we do think AI is an important conversation uh, and it will continue to be an important conversation going forward. The fund itself, we're, we're quite happy that we have quite a bit of exposure, both in terms of the data and the technology platforms. So we think it will be helpful to the fund. Thanks so much, Nick. Um, this question is from Pauline. How likely is it that we will be in a recession later this year or in 2024? And can you also please comment on what the impact will be on the portfolio? Great. And is um, I'll, I'll take the how likely are we to be in a recession. I'll add some thoughts. And then I think Will could maybe step through some of the companies in the portfolio. I think our approach to kind of macroeconomic forecasting is just to be a little cautious because it is a very, very difficult thing to predict. 
However, we think it is definitely the case that you can kind of look at the environment you're in and get a sense for the likely probabilities of things going forward. I guess I'd, I'd flag the things Katrina mentioned, um, high interest rates, China and Europe are starting to soften, and the consumer looks like they'll face headwinds. So we probably think there is a, a heightened probability of a slowdown from here. Importantly, we won't put all our eggs in, a, in that basket. We want to be sure that we own companies that can benefit in either the recessionary or the non-recessionary state of the world. But I think generally we do think it's probably of a heightened, heightened probability. Um, I'll pass over to you, Will, to give some thoughts on the portfolio. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Nick. I guess the focus for us is we're fundamental bottom-up stock pickers and we're really looking for earnings resiliency across our companies that we invest in. So um, we touched on structural growth thematics. Um, they are dynamics where they can grow irregardless of the macroeconomic environment because we have the visibility in terms of investment spend and the industry growth rates. Other areas, um, if you look at our top 20 positions, which we have on our slides, you, you can see that um, there should be a sense that there is an earnings resilience um, at, attribute towards it. So, if, for example, if you look at um, mission-critical software that is deeply embedded into customer workflows, I think of Adobe, I think of TransUnion, Dun & Bradstreet, Intuit. We also have financial exchanges, which tend to do better in terms of volatility as trading volumes go up. Intercontinental exchange, CME group comes to mind. Healthcare, which is largely a non-discretionary spend, HCA, healthcare, Avantor, Icon, key beneficiaries. So I think across the portfolio, you can see that there's very stock-specific stories. Um, there's a focus on long-term compound earnings growth because in turn, we think that drives share price movements and that will lead to the best returns for our investors. Thank you very much, guys. Katrina, this question is from Jeremy, Mike and Bill. They wanted to see what measure, measures or alternative structures the board has considered to address the persistent discount to NTA. Um, they would think um, long-term shareholders would welcome the opportunity to exit at NTA by an off-market buyback. Uh, Rob has also asked about whether you are considering buy, buying back shares and the advantages and disadvantages of that. Thank you. Um, thanks for the questions. Um, so now, whilst the underlying investment returns for the fund were strong in the past year um, and the TSR itself, we as shareholders also ourselves are disappointed that the shares are trading at a discount to NTA and that discount is approximately 14% um, to the last reported um, NTA. Unfortunately, the reality is that almost all the global licks are trading at discounts with the market um, more generally having been vo volatile globally in the last few years and constant noise around pandemics, Ukraine wars, um, inflation, recession risks, et cetera, the, the global licks have, have pretty much all traded at discounts. Um, we think that over time, as we get past the current economic uncertainty, that the, the discount will narrow, if not close, um, specifically at WAM, we are very focused on delivering on that combination of investment returns and continued shareholder engagement that the business prides itself on to narrow that discount. I mean, Jeff, um, Jeff and Oscar did a, a webinar a couple of weeks ago and Jeff had in um, their pat, um, slide pack 
um, the chart of um, WAM capital over the life, the 24 years um, in existence. And you will see even WAM capital um, has traded at various points at a discount. Um, and, and if you look at WAM leaders, it traded at a discount initially. Wilson Investment Fund um, traded at a discount for seven years, and both of those are now at premiums. Um, so it does take time to tighten up the register. Uh, and then we have had that overlay of just economic uncertainty and, and constant noise. But we think over time we will be able to, um, the register will continue to tighten up and that discount will, will narrow and hopefully close over time. Uh, regarding the structure um, and LICS versus alternative structure, we do think that the, um, the board thinks that the LICS structure is the preferable one for, for shareholders. Um, one of the advantages of the LICS structure is that um, unlike other structures and like open-ended funds where you often see that in um, at just the wrong time all the money gets pulled out in redemptions, et cetera, um, which then has a liquidity issue um, for the fund and means that the, end, um, the value of the assets for other shareholders gets pulled down. LICs don't have that issue because the capital is closed end um, and so the manager can focus on their investment strategy undisturbed by those inflows and outflows. Um, and, and so we do think that is an advantage of the LIC structure. The other advantage is that the majority of our shareholders are self-managed super funds and these um, shareholders um, benefit from those fully frank dividends uh, and, and um, our shareholders tend to like consistent dividends o over time. Um, whereas in, in a trust structure, every time you make um, profit, it gets paid out immediately as pre in, in a pre-tax state. Uh, and, and so in one year, you might get a large um, uh, uh, distribution and the next year you might get nothing. So the advantage of the LIC structure is that we can fully frank the dividends while we have the franking uh, and that we can provide a con consistent stream of those dividends that we pay from that profit reserve uh, over time. Um, so, yeah, well, that's that's what we think about the, the, the structure. Um, and then lastly, in terms of the buy, um, buyback question, um, Jeff has spoken about buybacks many times before um, in these webinars and also at our, our presentations and roadshows. Um, what we've seen over time is that whilst buying back shares at a discount in theory stacks up from a numbers perspective, what you actually see in reality in the Australian market for licks is that it tends just to put a floor under the discount and doesn't actually um, make significant strides in closing that, that discount. Um, so as a shareholder, when a company is buying back uh, its own shares, you get the you build the perception that there's no better use um, of of that capital uh, instead of putting it to use in the investment portfolio um, that fund manager is, is happy to hand it back. And so it, it may create a flaw but doesn't close, um, close the discount. So our belief is that, that buybacks don't work um, and so we don't see that as a, as a strategy for, for the fund. Um, also, just a final point, I know this is a very long-winded answer, um, but I think it's an important one and, and one that we are, you know, um, all of these questions are, are very relevant um, and, and fair. 
Um, the other thing that is happening at the moment is this recent legislation um, being, that's been introduced to Parliament. It hasn't yet been passed, um, but just around on and off um, market buybacks and off-market buybacks um, will potentially lose a portion of their franking account balance um, going forward if the legislation's passed, which would um, obviously negatively impact shareholders. So there's some consideration there in terms of the, the legislation changes um, that are coming. Thank you very much, Katrina. Nick, we'll turn to you. Uh, this question is from Adam. Could you please give us an example of when you have sold a position and the philosophy around when to sell a stock? Yeah, absolutely, Adam. Um, thank you for the question. I guess, well, I guess just maybe some illustrative examples because we are always, you know, buying and selling um, positions and, and new new investments. There, actually, over the last year, we've held a position in a couple of the merger takeout um companies. This includes Activision and Black Knight. Uh, now, this is a very special situation for us. We saw that these um, mergers were trading at a significant discount to the takeout price. And we think that was a reflection of a lot of the fear in the market over the regulators taking an aggressive approach. However, when we did the work and we did the thinking, we thought that these deals were unlikely to breach concentration issues and historically, the regulators have had a very, very unsuccessful um, track record with vertical merger blocks. Uh, so we took positions in both of those. They both had relatively good news over the past few months. Um, and we don't like to overstay our welcome and trade at too small of a spread. So as the spread closed, we, we sold those positions. Uh, maybe a more, a, no, a more normal one is so we hold uh, a Booz Allen in the funds. We think Booz Allen's doing fantastically well. We think the results were really strong. Uh, Double-digit revenue growth, really upbeat commentary from management, and we think conservatism built into the guide. And yet we trimmed the position recently just a little bit. And that's kind of a reflection of the fact that we do think markets get quite optimistic at times and quite pessimistic at other times. And so we're just happy to kind of take a bit off the top and then our expectation is at some point in the future, the market might get too pessimistic, at which point we'd be happy to kind of add back to the position. Um, and that's just us taking advantage of, of the kind of emotions of the market. Booz Allen remains a very healthy position today, but that's just an example of some of the trimming we do in the fund. Great. Thank you so much, Nick. Uh, this question is for Katrina, um, and it's from David in Ishaveral. Are you invested in India? Given India's significant economic growth, are you planning to look for prospects in India? Thanks for the question. Yep. So we do um, see India as an incredibly um, interesting uh, market in terms of the growth opportunity um, that's ahead of it, the young population compared to China, etc. Right now, we are exposed to India through our multinational um, companies rather than directly invested there. Um, I have spent a lot of time in, um, prior, in my prior role traveling around India, seeing, in, um, seeing Indian companies, know many of them well. Um, traditionally, a lot of the, the issue with investing there is that many of the companies, the very high quality ones, have traded at very high valuations and you've had to go down um, the areas of the market like the banks, um, IT services where there's millions of them um, to, to get 
both the combination of growth and undervaluation, so valuation support. Um, that's not to say we can we, that we will not invest in India. We absolutely um, think about it as a market for, for looking for a potential investments, but it's got to be that combination um, of us identifying undervaluation uh, and significant growth opportunity. Um, it will be, I mean, it's an incredible um, place. There is huge infrastructure development needed um, and we don't think it will be as seamless as China has been over the last few decades, but absolutely it's a, an important market. It's um, providing significant like growth to many of the multinationals that we have, um, but right now we don't have direct investments there. Thanks very much, Katrina. Uh, this one is for Nick and it's from Hon. Given the Japanese economy has only just reopened and is benefiting from the current post-pandemic bump, should we expect WAM Global to widen its position on Japanese corporations? Have you already increased your exposure to this market? And if not, why not? Thank you, Hon, for the question. Um, that's a very good one. I think there are similarities to some degree between what Katrina was just mentioning about India and what I think about Japan, primarily around the valuation levels that we've seen in the past. Japan was a market potentially because of a very low um, Bank of Japan interest rate, but where we did tend to see good companies, they, they certainly exist there, but they traded at multiples that we just, or valuation levels that we just found um, didn't meet our process. So I think historically that's meant that we haven't had a significant exposure there, although we've always had investments. <clears throat> in Japan. Um, now, we took a trip to Japan in February, Katrina and I, and that was really useful in terms of getting a feel for the opening up that is certainly occurring, uh, the opportunity set that that brings. But also, I think Japan's an extremely important market to get the investments correct. So we talked to a lot of companies over there, um, and some of the most helpful conversations were actually the negative ones. <clears throat> where we would talk to a management team that was facing difficulties and at times get a sense that they weren't going to take the actions required to put the company in a good place. So I think often with Japan, it's about making sure that you invest, uh, you be careful in selecting your investments. Uh, that being said, I think there have been some significant falls in share prices of some of the good companies in Japan, some of the high quality ones. So we certainly see the potential to increase the exposure to Japan going forward. We do think the opening up will provide tailwinds, um, and it's just about maintaining that process and that valuation discipline. Thanks, Nick. We'll, we'll go uh, to you. Uh, this question is from Stan. Is there much merger and acquisition activity happening amongst overseas companies right now? What do you expect going forward, and have you benefited from this? Yes, thanks. thanks for the question. Nick touched on this a little bit with the merger of opportunity in Activision and Black Knight, which the fund benefited from. As a general comment, we're starting, we're seeing merger and acquisition activity, um, particularly in the small and mid cap space, just given partly due to disconnecting valuations between large cap and mid cap companies. And a lot of the times, good quality businesses which are generating strong free cash flow are very undervalued for, for their assets. So. Aplus is another name I talked about earlier, which is um, being bid for by Apollo. Um, we actually think the bid looks a little bit low and we wouldn't be surprised if 
um, a bigger premium came through from another bidder. So that could potentially be an interesting opportunity. And by and large, I guess our investment process, we're looking for undervalued growth companies, and that naturally lends itself towards companies which tend to get acquired or tend to get um, tend to be able to um, fit into a larger company in mm-hmm. quite a good way. So it, it is a balance because on one side, you have equity and debt mar- capital markets um, with rising interest rates a little bit harder to raise money. But on the other side, um, good businesses are trading at discounted valuations, and that's where we see the opportunity. So we do expect more activity. Um, and whilst um, we're not investing in companies for the sake of them being taken out, um, it is a positive catalyst and a nice ha- optionality to have in our investments. Thank you, Will. Katrina, uh, we'll turn to you. This question is from Janine. I'm interested in how the US dollar and the euro affects the price of WAM Global on the ASX. I think if the Australian dollar goes down uh, compared to the US dollar or euro, it should cause a rise in the WAM global share price on the ASX. Is this correct? And adding on to that from Greg, would you consider hedging? Thanks um, for both of those questions. So regarding the currency movement, so when the Aussie dollar goes down relative to the US dollar um, or euro, for example, Um, That does cause the value of our investments, which are held um, in US dollars or euro, to go up, which means that when we translate them back to um, for the NTA in Australian dollars, the value of the NTA goes up. Um, Now, relating the NTA to the share price is is, um, what I was referring to earlier regarding the discount or premium. So we don't necessarily, like the movement in NTA does then drive the the share price, but the amount will depend on the level of the the discount premium to NTA at the time. So it's not directly um, the impact of um, the Aussie dollar going down, translating straight away into the share price, but it does directly translate into the the NTA. Uh, And sorry, last bit of the question. (laughs) Um, What was... Pardon? The hedging. Uh, so in terms of um, the hedging, so look, it will. We can hedge. Um, we haven't hedged since the start of the start of the fund um, at absolute extremes. You know that you saw in the GFC, etc., where the Aussie dollar absolutely cratered. Um, we could we could hedge. Um, we think at the kind of sixty five level we're at now, it's not at an extreme. Um, you know. The, the Aussie, there's lots of um, reasons the Aussie dollar moves around, but right now we do have that interest rate differential versus the US, for example, um, where US rates are at a higher level than, than the Aussie cash rate. Um, so at the 65 level, um, we're not looking to, to hedge. Our general um, policy around hedging was that our shareholders wanted both diversification in terms of access to global companies companies, but also in terms of um, diversifying outside the Aussie dollar. Um, So our general policy is not to hedge. um, But as I said, at absolute extremes, we could look to do that. But at this 65 level, we don't think that is an extreme level. Thank you, Katrina. And since we have been receiving quite a few questions from the audience, we will be uh, running the webinar 15 minutes um, over. Um, so we'll, we'll go to Nick for the next question. Uh, this is from Michael. Uh, markets are up sharply this year. Have they run too fast? Uh, yes, thanks, Michael. Um, so we uh, we love debating markets, and we I guess we debate this quite a lot internally as well. 
I think um, market prices changing is, is often a great way to get a sense for what the market expects to happen in the future. Um, certainly last year there was markets being priced for a lot of pessimism with regards to the growth outlooks and how the economies would evolve. I think markets going up this rapidly does suggest that markets are starting to take a more um, optimistic or benign approach to the expectations for the economy, economy going forward. Um, so we think that we would probably take the the kind of softer side of that, just given the headwinds that we've kind of discussed on this call. Uh, I do think the other really important thing with the markets being up this year is that it's that kind of, it's that idea Katrina mentioned earlier that the markets are not the economy. And I think at the last roadshows, Jeff mentioned that it's time in the market, not timing the market. And so it's just that idea that it is generally better to stay invested um, have exposure to the opportunity set from equities over time versus trying to kind of aggressively get in or out. We think, as we've talked about in other questions and during the prepared part, um, we do think we've positioned the fund for kind of a range of outcomes. However, I guess circling back to the original question, it, it does seem quite fast and, and quite optimist, optimistic, the, um, the price changes that have been happening. Thank you, uh, Nick. Uh, Katrina, we'll go to you. This question is from Ian, um, and it's regarding China. How concerned are you and why are you invested there? Thanks for the question. So, look, in terms of um, China, we do think that the growth that we've seen since, what, 1978, when they entered really entered back into the global economy, has been extraordinary. And, the you know, the country's gone from about the 10th um, of the size of the US to three quarters of the size of the US. So we do think that that growth of the past, that growth in the past is a thing of the past. We won't grow at those same rates. We've got a much bigger base now um, for China. Uh, and the recent slowing, um, you know, as I um, mentioned in the prepared remarks, it, there are, it is multifaceted. Um, and, and so in terms of level of concern, um, we think that, you know, the government does have significant incentives to increase the stimulus from, from here, um, but it does seem like right now they're doing this piecemeal um, approach of slightly reducing reserve requirements. Um, they don't want to give a big bang to the, the economy right now. That could certainly change. Um, and so we do think, you know, that growth, the growth rates as we look forward will, will look a bit, um, will look slower uh, and and that the, the prior rates are, are a thing of the past. More generally, in terms of the opportunity for China, it is to change from that um, GDP growth having been led by infrastructure to more consumption-led um, GDP growth. In the US, 70% of um, GDP uh, growth is, is um, from consumption, whereas in China it's 40%. And you do have an enormous um, population um, that if they start consuming could drive a huge amount of demand for many different um, pro um, products and services. Uh, but the government right now has been relatively um, reluctant to do, to do this. So, look, we think you've got to pick your spots in, in China. Um, and in terms of why we are invested there, we've got 1.4% of the portfolio there. So quite a small um, percentage, but... 
And the reason is that it's the specific stocks that we're invested in there um, that we think are compelling. Um, but why don't I turn to Will? You can talk through the actual stocks that we have. Um, but yeah, in terms of my level of concern, it is, um, I do think we are slowing, but I do think the stocks that we have um, have very compelling valuations and that the market there has been aggressively sold off. Um, so that's created the opportunity. Yes, and I'll, I'll jump in, Train, uh, Katrina. I think that's exactly right. We've taken a cautious approach. Tencent and Alibaba together are our portfolio positions, and they represent 1.4% of the portfolio. As Katrina mentioned, we are seeing green shoots, um, but not necessarily at the pace that investors were hoping for. But from our perspective, we've moved past some of the regulatory crackdown issues, and our investment thesis is very built on a company-specific point of view. If you have a look at the business, you're seeing positive earnings momentum, a focus on profitable growth and returning capital to shareholders, and that's vastly different versus the prior um, couple of years. If we look at Tencent specifically, the company is trading at 17 times price-to-earnings ratio, delivering double-digit revenue growth. It's got a strong pipeline of gains um, that have been approved by the government, and its short-form video advertising business is going extremely well, and we think that will drive the narrative going forward. Um, in a similar vein, Alibaba are trading at 10 times price to earnings. So again, incredibly cheap for double-digit revenue growth. The positive catalyst to realize value here is that management has signaled that they're going to split the business into six separate groups. And we think that will realize value for investors. So that's the positive catalyst that we're looking for in our position there. But um, cautiously optimistic on China and Tencent, Alibaba, 1.4% of the portfolio. Thank you, Will. Uh, Katrina, this is from David. Of the 19.3% investment portfolio performance, how much of this performance is due to realised and unrealised foreign exchange gains? Thanks for the question. So the impact of FX positively contributed uh, to the performance of the financial assets um, by 4.3% and foreign currency by 0.3%. Uh, the currencies that contributed to the FX gain included the USD, which was 3%, Euro 1.2%, uh, and um, GBP, um, British Pound, 0.5%, partially offset by an FX loss of 0.1% from um, Japanese yen. Um, but it, and in terms of this, the index also benefits, um, gets an FX benefit too, though. Um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the answer there. Thank you so much, Katrina. Um, and I think that's all we have time for today. I'll pass it back to you for any closing remarks. Sure. Thank you very much, um, Emiko, for facilitating the, the Q&A. And thank you to everyone for joining us um, and to Nick and Will for, your, for joining me today. Um, a big thank you to our shareholders for your support. As I said at the outset, we're really excited about the portfolio of companies um, that we own and the returns that we expect them to generate over time. Uh, and we look forward to updating you again soon. Um, a recording of the, of the call will be uploaded to the website shortly, uh, and we will get back to you if we didn't get to answer your questions. I'm sorry, we did have a, a bit of an overload today. So anything that's not answered, um, we will um, get back to you. But please do get in touch via phone or email at any time with any questions or feedback that you have. Thank you.